Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. I took some time off, um, which was delightful and rejuvenating. Um, honestly, it was, you know, every, every time I take like a little bit of a break from the show, like whether it's over like the time between semesters or like even now, just like this two week break that I took from the show, I like go back to start writing my notes and, and prepping for the, the first show back. And I'm like, how am I supposed to do this? How does this actually work? Um, but we always figure it out eventually. So, you know, we, we, we continue to ball. Um, so yeah, kind of a big, busy couple of weeks that I missed. So we've got a lot to cover today. Um, so what's on the docket for today? Um, we're going to first talk, talk about Donald Trump maybe getting arrested. He did not get arrested, but why did people think that? Um, what is maybe the kind of like long-term outcome there? Is he maybe going to be arrested in the future, um, et cetera, et cetera? We're going to get into that. Um, plus, there were some bank failures um, over the time that I was not doing the show. So we're going to talk about what that potentially means and whether or not we are about to enter, you know, some kind of recession or depression, um, kind of like what the what the long-term potential ramifications of those bank failures may be. Um, and then, last but not least, we're going to briefly talk about um, newfound efforts to ban TikTok. Um, that has been going on in Congress this week. There's a hearing today. There have been a bunch of TikTokers up on the Hill kind of um, making testimony in favor of, of keeping TikTok, not banning it. So we're going to kind of get into what that's all about, what those ramifications are, and whether those debates are really going to go anywhere at all. Um, but all that being said, let's just jump into it. So the Donald Trump arrest. Now, this is like the 45th time. Well, this is, okay, so look, Donald Trump has always been dealing with like 15 active open investigations or trials or hearings at a time. Like it's just like, that's just kind of the reality of the Donald Trump world. But this is the first time where we have gotten reports directly from Trump, basically, that he was going to be like physically arrested and indicted on these certain charges. Um, so, you know, you, when when like the, the cops like break into the, the apartment and like arrest somebody, whatever, like obviously that's not something we see with like some super high profile people. It's usually kind of a little bit more underground. But this is the first time where Donald Trump himself has said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to, you know, have to do a perp walk, basically. Um, so he said on Truth Social, like, guys, get ready. I'm about to be arrested by the New York, you know, New York Attorney General's office um, because of all these like false accusations. Um, and everybody goes crazy because Donald Trump getting arrested would be honestly hilarious. Um, but we kind of weren't sure what that actually was going to look like. Um and of course, with all of these open investigations, with Donald Trump potentially like actually having to, like being like physically arrested, um, you know, as Donald Trump once said, he could stand on Fifth Avenue, shoot a man, and still not be convicted of murder. Despite the fact that nobody is above the law, it certainly seems like he is. Uh, and so that's kind of why this particular instance is so interesting, that there are so many different investigations going on. Um, but... This might be a situation in which, uh, sorry, just mess something up. Um, might be a situation in which, like, he's actually held accountable. Although, of course, that's not actually going to happen because somehow, some way, you know, he is just going to continue to do what he does. 
so, but let's talk about, like, what this case actually is. Um, so, again, he announced on Truth Social that he thought he was going to be arrested in New York um, for basically legal issues surrounding hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. If you don't remember who Stormy Daniels is, you clearly were not on 2016-2017 Resist Lib Twitter, slash you were, you know, whatever. I was on a very specific side of the internet. Um with these conversations, but Stormy Daniels is a porn star that claims that she had a sexual relationship with Donald Trump, um, and basically that Donald Trump and his lawyers paid her hush money in order to not come out and speak about it during the 2016 election. And so that's like that's a pretty much like a settled thing. Um, Michael Cohen, who is Trump's kind of like fixer, um, testified that Trump had paid him to pay off had directed him to pay off Stormy and then had like reimbursed Cohen for those payments that were made to Stormy Daniels and I guess her like team. Um, so again, this is like the, the hush money payments themselves are definitely something that happened. And in their, they're basically going to try to take this like kind of smaller felony situation and or misdemeanor situation then kind of like ramp it up to a felony by saying that it was an election law slash finance violation. So they're basically trying to prove that Trump not only paid off this person um, and tried to get her not to say anything about the situation, but also used campaign money to do it. He used campaign contributions to pay off this individual in order to not say anything negative that might harm his campaign. Obviously, that's not really super allowed. Um, there's like the, the I'll get into this, but there's some like complicated legal precedent there. But it's certainly in, in terms of the court of public opinion, it's a much stickier situation um, for Donald Trump to be in. Although then again, Donald Trump is Teflon man; it doesn't matter. Nothing sticks to him. So you know, I I'll also get into this, but I'm a little bit of a pessimist with this whole situation. I just I kind of feel like we're like Sisyphus, like just pushing the rock up the hill over and over again. Um, And we know that nothing is going to change, but we keep doing it. Why? Anyway, am I mixing them up? No, Prometheus is the one. Yeah, never mind. I'm correct. I got it. I know my Greek mythology. It's okay. Um, So anyway, so it's also important that the Trump organization records falsely classify the payment that was made to Stormy Daniels as legal expenses, legal expenses, which is a local crime. Um, but again, they need to prove that there was some, quote, intent to defraud um, with the concealment of the actual purpose of the funds. Um, so it's, it's you know, you can't say that the funds are something different than what they are, um, but that's just kind of a smaller case. And that's like a lot of I was reading there's a lot of like the white collar crimes that they charge in New York have to do with saying that something is not what it is um, on those like legal um, documents like tax returns stuff like that. Um, But they need to again prove that there's kind of like a larger intensity fraud, a larger kind of mission around the whole situation. So that's very interesting. So again, whether or not the hush money can amount to a campaign donation is it like I was saying that it's like some sticky legal precedent there. So it is an issue that's come up in the past and it's not officially settled law. And it's hilarious to me. This is the kind of thing that has come up multiple times. Um, So if you would listen to last season's finale episode of Scandal or Scamdal, I 
talked about John Edwards, who was a senator and a presidential candidate in 2012 who had an affair um, with a woman and got her pregnant while his wife was dying of cancer. So this, yeah, yeah, it all ties together. It all ties together. Um, But he had paid hush money to the pregnant mistress in order to kind of not speak out against him or not say anything about um, her pregnancy. And the jury ended up um, deadlocked on this specific case. So there's no real legal precedent that already exists. So this quote from the article, um, he was not guilty of using campaign funds to hide. He, you know, he sinned, but he was not guilty of using campaign funds to hide his sins. Um, So again, just like a similar situation where, you know, this situation with John Edwards was a complete campaign ender, completely ended his career, ended everything possible for him. Um, Now we have this kind of similar, like analogous situation. And we know that it's even if it all gets aired out in court, um, the the court of public opinion is not going to really be swayed in the same way that it was swayed in the John Edwards case, which I just think is a very interesting kind of like one-to-one comparison of a decade worth of political nonsense of how differently these two situations were treated with like a lot of, I mean, not like a ton of similarities. I mean, yes, a lot of similarities between these two cases, um, not identical, but similar, and how these two cases are treated both legally and again by the kind of court of public opinion. at least and like even like John Edwards I mean I think also like a lot of um politicians that get into these kind of like deeply scandalous situations are like oh you know mea culpa like I sinned I did not fulfill my you know role as a Christian as a husband and father blah 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 um but that is obviously not something that Donald Trump is doing and he's continuing to say I didn't do it I didn't do it I didn't do it um and he kind of will continue to be that way for ever and ever but anyway, so that's that's kind of like just an interesting like that. That's the situation as it stands. That's why he thought he was going to be arrested. That's kind of the legal precedent. It's that there's been a lot of cases that have been a lot more clear cut in terms of kind of getting something to stick to Donald Trump. This kind of seems like the loosest. Um, so it's interesting that this has kind of come the farthest in terms of um, like actually arresting Donald Trump and having that visual of him being arrested. Um or at least theoretically, that's what he says. I don't, I don't know. I don't, it's Donald Trump. He says a lot of things. Um, but anyway, it's interesting because I feel, it feels to me like this is one of the loosest cases we've read. Like they're going to have to push pretty hard to figure out a way to, 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 to directly, directly connect this hush money payment to campaign finance um, and like making all of those things stick together to make it a felony. Uh, And I just don't really see that working out. But again, I'm a pessimist. So whatever. So he was supposed to be arrested on Tuesday. He was not arrested on Tuesday. Boo hiss. Um, So anyway, the arrest didn't happen. There were some very convincing and very hilarious AI images that were floating around of what the arrest might have looked like. And some of them were pretty convincing um i like come across one on my feed and i was like oh my god it happened then obviously i realized there was not another tweet there was nothing else there was no news notifications i was like okay this did not happen got it understood um but also i was 
sitting on the couch yesterday and my roommate comes running out of her room and she shows me the picture. She goes, Emily, what is this? I was like, it AI. And she's like, I, I mean, I got that eventually, but oh my God. Uh, and it's just a very funny situation. So anyway, the AI, AI is not something we've talked about yet on here. Maybe we'll talk about it eventually. I, I can't, I'm bored by it already, but um, just a very funny little, you know, connection between current events. Um, but before this kind of non-event happened, um, there were there was a lot of conversation going on about it, obviously, kind of on both sides of the aisle. Um, so Republican lawmakers argued that this was akin to uh, state offices do, basically doing direct election interference because they don't like Donald Trump. And so they're going to kind of come up with some random charge to stick on him um, just because he's running for president again and they don't want him to run for president again. Um, so they're, and then they've also stated that they're going to kind of use their investigatory powers as the majority party in the House um, to investigate the New York Attorney General's office for potential violations of their power uh, and potentially like interfering with an election. Um, and so, you know, you know how we said early on that the Republicans were going to use their power for, for evil and just run a bunch of nonsense investigations because that was what they wanted to do. I just made that too loud. I'm so sorry. Um, so that, that's what they wanted to do. Like, that's that's exactly what's happening. Um, they're going to get some fun sound bites for a couple weeks while they try to kind of shore up that Donald Trump base or like that kind of like far right anti-government base, I guess. Um, and kind of like use that to their advantage, advantage, trying to spin this potentially in a positive way, kind of spin it against um, the Democrats, against the New York Attorney General's office, etc. Um, so that's kind of an interesting situation. And then Donald Trump was also calling on supporters to protest any potential arrest January 6th, 2.0. Um, and a lot of Republican lawmakers have been saying, no, please, please don't do that. January 6th made us look so bad. We cannot have that happen again. And they don't want to have to support Donald Trump and his protesters if they do that again. And I think that their, their fear is they're trying to make Donald Trump be as quiet as possible so that they don't have to come out against him in any way. Um, because even though he's not politically helpful right now, um, not supporting him is politically detrimental. Uh, so it's an interesting line that the Republican Party is kind of towing right now. Um, the other interesting thing that my pet professor had talked about yesterday, we were kind of we were talking about this a little bit, um, but he was saying, you know, the January 6th protesters thought that Donald Trump was going to stand in his, their corner. He thought they were going to, um, you know, pay for their legal fees, all of that kind of stuff. And after January 6th, Donald Trump said, who are you guys? I don't know you. I'm not supporting you. Um, and so it kind of alienated a lot of those people um, who really thought that Donald Trump was going to like stringently back them. Um, so it's 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 there's a lot less support uh, on like that far hard line, like Donald Trump support. I'm going to like burn down buildings, uh, which is, again, just like an interesting change from even a couple of years ago doesn't mean that they're going to the Democrats, doesn't mean that the whole party is shifting more towards the left, but it does indicate that the party is shifting away from Donald Trump. So again, that's a kind of an interesting dynamic that is that is starting to become a lot more apparent. 
Um, and New York City police were putting up barriers by the courthouse and taking other precautions through the week, um, kind of thinking that there was going to be some kind of protest, some kind of uh, demonstration uh, that didn't appear. And of course, there was no actual arrest. Um, so that was kind of a anticlimactic 24 hours. It would have been really, really funny. But whatever. It's okay. I guess I'll live. Um, but yeah, so those are kind of like the responses across the board. Um, and again, I, I said multiple times, and I'll talk about it more now, is that I'm just kind of a hater with this kind of stuff. Um, it's been years of before the election, during the election, after the election. It's been, you know, when did, when did the, so 2015 to 2023. So it's been seven, eight years of things coming out against Donald Trump, sexual assault charges, um, financial mishandling, bankruptcy, um, you know, treason, like all of these different charges that have come out against Donald Trump um, and nothing has sticked, stuck, nothing has stuck, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so I understand the principle of continuing to try these issues. I get it. But we can see that nothing is going to happen in the actual courts because, nothing, again, nothing yet has stuck. And also, things aren't really changing in the court of public opinion. Um, the people who support Donald Trump are going to continue to support Donald Trump because any charge that the New York Attorney General's office brings against them is going to be, um, you know, liberal nonsense where they're just trying to, you know, get this guy, whatever. Um, they're, they, they're never going to acknowledge that these charges are like a potentially real thing. Um, and so it's like, why are we continuing to spend all, like, why is this, why does this continue to be the strategy um, of trying to get Donald Trump? Because um, it's not changing anything. And again, I understand the, like, the justice aspect of it, of he did a wrong thing and therefore he should have his day in court. Um, but I just don't, I don't think that it's working in the Democrats' benefit. And I also, like, I don't think it's helping. I think it might also be hurting because things get spun back on the Democrats so aggressively because they have their messaging issues. Um, anyway, I just think it's like an interest, it's interesting that this has been the strategy for so many years and so little has actually come from it. I don't know what the legal strategy is. I don't know how to make these things stick better. I'm not a lawyer. I never will be a lawyer. That's not something I can comment on. I'm just pointing out that it's interesting that the strategy has remained the same for so, so, so many years and nothing has changed. The one interesting political implication that I do understand, that I kind of touched on a little bit, is that a lot of these cases kind of force Republican members to, 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 to outspokenly or just in general kind of speak out in support of Donald Trump in one way or another. So, you know, you have people who maybe are trying to shake off their association with Donald Trump as that becomes like kind of less politically viable and more politically complicated, um, but are also kind of forced to say, oh, no, but the New York Attorney General's office, they're, you know, the liberal mob and they are trying to bring wokeness to destroy us all um, and then are kind of tacitly supporting Donald Trump because it's politically viable for them to attack liberals, you know? So it's like that interesting dynamic of the... Republican Party trying to run away from that Trump association, but at the same time being so intrinsically tied to it 
that they really can't escape that association um, if they want to still be the kind of fire brands that they that they want to be. I'm not sure if that was the most clear um, articulation of that <laughs> idea that I've ever said, um, but it's still, you know, kind of an interesting, an interesting dynamic. And of course, like I've talked about this before, but the 2024 Republican primary is going to be just like deeply important for what the Republican Party is going to look like far into the future. Um, you know, which direction do the Republicans want to go and can they survive whichever direction they choose? Um, you know, I think another Donald Trump candidacy will kill them forever. I'm also not sure Ron DeSantis' presidency is going to be the most, um, you know, long, the most, the most viable long-term solution. So I don't know, but it is just an interesting um, dynamic there that we're going to be continuing to watch. Um, I'm going to move on. I have a couple more things I was going to talk about, but we're just going to move on from that. Um, the one thing, last thing I'll say is I can't believe we're still talking about Stormy Daniels in the year of our Lord 2023. I hope she is getting paid so much money. I'm happy for her. But with that, let's move on to um, a little bit of a spooky, scary, kind of depressing story. Um, are we about to be in our Kit Kitridge era? And if you're not familiar with Kit Kitridge, first of all, like, get educated. I don't, you know, it's not my job to educate you, actually. <laughs> but um, are basically, are we about to enter a depression? Are we about to go into a 2008 kind of um, banking freefall? Are we about to live through the big short again, etc.? So let's talk about that. The worst thing about this situation also is that um, there's nowhere to watch the big short for free streaming, which is like kind of ironic if you think about it really, really hard. But anyway, it's a great movie. So if you need to get educated before we all fall into another recession, there you go. But over the break, um, kind of like right when my little two week break started, um, multiple regional, like kind of smaller regional banks crashed. So the Silicon Valley Bank um, and Signature Bank both failed mid-March, which has led to some heightened tensions and concerns for regulators and for the banking industry overall. Um, so first I'm going to talk a little bit about like why these two banks failed and they are very much connected to each other um, and then talk about kind of what regulators are doing and what this kind of means for us for the financial industry, kind of all of that. So Silicon Valley Bank is located out um, in California. I think it's like it's headquartered in San Francisco, I believe. I think that's that's what it is, but it's somewhere somewhere out there um, in California. And so a lot of their the thing about like smaller regional banks is that they generally rely on a lot of um, like small businesses and startups. So they're more vulnerable in general, um, just because like that's the clientele that they appeal to. And so SVB had a pretty significant reliance on the tech startup industry. Um, and as we've seen over the past several months, tech companies, big, small, in between, have been doing mass layoffs, have been really struggling from kind of the kind of regression to the mean post COVID. Um, so obviously they were kind of chugging along pretty fine before COVID. Then because of the reliance on technology um, during like the, the, the real, real deep pandemic years when we were all home, the tech industry basically was artificially inflated um, pretty large. And now that people are starting to return to work 
everything is kind of starting to come back to where it once was. But all these tech companies spent a lot more money, hired a lot more people, basically like built up faster than they should have trying to take advantage of these like changing um, market trends. So again, when these companies, so these companies have now started really to struggle and they're starting to pull a lot more money out of the bank, which soaked up a lot of their like liquid assets that the bank maintained. And then the bank thus had to sell off a lot of their investments at a pretty steep discount. So this was a very kind of bad situation where like a lot of factors were kind of working against the bank um, that they kind of like lost all of their financial um, viability. And when they revealed that loss to um, depositors, the tech industry completely panicked and startups pulled all of their money and there was a run on the bank. Um, so they lost all of their money and it was not good and the bank collapsed basically. And the FDIC um, ultimately, which is the, mm, I can never remember the acronym. The f I'm Googling it. I know everyone loves it when I Google things, but I want to know what it stands for, which I should know. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. I just couldn't remember what the I was. Anyway, so the FDIC steps in. They took ownership of the bank because the, the board couldn't find someone to basically step in and buy the bank out. And so the federal regulators basically bailed the bank out, which was, you know, is controversial in the face of the 2008 bailouts, but we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, and so the federal regulators basically said, yeah, we don't care what you're doing. We're getting involved. We're stopping this where it is. We're taking control. You know, we're seizing your ship. We're doing the whole thing. And this was the largest bank failure since 2008. Um, and a lot of people have been blaming changes made to the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, th this was like, like a banking regulation act that was signed into law in response to the 2008 financial crisis. And then in 2018, Trump signed a bill into law that reduced how often regional banks had to submit to stress tests by the Federal Reserve. So basically they didn't have to tell the federal government how they were going to manage some kind of like significant financial catastrophe. Um, and because they didn't have to kind of assess that in themselves as often, they weren't doing it at all, which is part of the reason why, well, at least that's why a lot of experts are saying um, that these banks are, were so vulnerable to um, to this kind of, you know, this, this kind of slow trickle of, of bad things happening. Um, so they weren't able to kind of like live up to the stress of this kind of like financial catastrophe. Um, and then there was a lot of other people blaming the, the handling of interest rates because of COVID. Um, so that was also kind of an interesting, interesting dynamic as well, that now the Fed is really thinking about the way that they're treating interest rates um, because they were fluctuating so much. The bank had a lot of long-term bonds um, and because the interest rate went so high up, um, they didn't like re negotiate those bonds. They didn't like reassess how they were actually paying for them. Um, and so that ended up being like a pretty significant part of why the bank failed as well. So after SVB collapsed and they announced that um, Signature Bank, which is a regional bank in New York, also said, oh, no, we're not in a good place right now. Um, and Signature is a bank that provides lending services to law firms and real estate companies, um, including some clients that are associated with the Trump Organization, which doesn't really mean anything, but it is kind of an interesting side note. 
Um, and again, so these are two like very different industries that the two banks are generally dealing with. But Signature Bank had recently been began taking deposits of crypto assets. Um, so when the cryptocurrency exchange collapsed back over the summer, I guess, uh, the bank started really, really suffering as well. Um, and so when SVB crashed, a lot of people who had deposited money in Signature got really nervous and then they started pulling all of their deposits out which kind of caused the same like a similar run on the bank caused the fdic to step in and take it over um and then that was two kind of major regional banks that crashed right after another kind of as a result of each other um so again two different reasons but similar kind of root cause in the tech industry um kind of being overly inflated due to a myriad of factors, but um, COVID is certainly one of them. Um, but, you know, those those industries were overly inflated. There was too much confidence kind of in the tech industry, in cryptocurrency, which I, you know, I think it's, they're, they're all connected, they're all combined. Um, and there was just, yeah, there was too much trust there. And when things started again to regress back to the mean, um, these banks really, really struggled. Um, and so that's not great that these two kind of regional banks that are not the big ones, but are still pretty important to a lot of specifically small businesses um, were unable to kind of survive that kind of financial hardship. So what now? So from what I've seen, um, lawmakers and bank leaders are being pretty tight-lipped about whether or not these two bank failures, um, plus the failure of the Irish National Bank, which is also interesting and add some context. I didn't research that for this just because I can only focus on so many things, but I was in Ireland over break for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, <laughs> um, and my dear friend that I was visiting was like, because we, we, we were talking about the, the bank crashes and everything, um, as you do when you're in a pub in Ireland, you're like, oh yeah, the bank just crashed in the US. Um, um, what was I gonna say? She's like, oh yeah, the Irish National Bank just crashed too. So like, that's not a great situation, but they're still sponsoring the rugby team. So, you know, just, just some additional global context. But anyway, they're, they're, they're basically, they're, they're trying really hard to prove that these couple of bank failures are not indicative of a larger financial crisis that we need to be preparing for. Um, obviously trying to like instill trust in the people that um, there's not going to be a large depression coming on, the big banks aren't going to fail, like most people's money um, are going to be protected. Um, oh, another thing that, why didn't I mention that up here, but something that's interesting is with the FDIC, um, like deposits of $250,000 or less are insured. So if there's a run on the bank and something happens, if you have less than $250,000 in the bank, you're all good to go. Most of the accounts in both SVB and Signature Bank were greater than $250,000. So they were not insured. So because of this, when the bank run started and when people started to get spooked, that's why people were pulling a lot more of their money out a lot faster because they knew if the bank collapsed, they weren't gonna get their money back. So that's a pretty important detail as well that we're gonna come back to that like $250,000 threshold um, 
we're just gonna we're gonna continue to, to get into that. Also, a little bit of a side note. I'm such a woman in finance right now. Look at me understanding all of these things. I took econ. I know economics. My high school econ teacher would be so proud of me right now. I hope I'm not saying things that are wrong. I don't think I am, but hmm. anyway, where, where was I? So anyway, yeah, leaders are obviously they're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're definitely in a depression. Pull your money out of the banks because obviously that would cause a run on the banks. It'd be a whole situation. Um, so they're really trying not to say that. Um, but again, it really seems like regulators are trying to get in front of things as much as possible. Um, and so these bailouts of these two banks are a little controversial, obviously, um, because in 2008, when all of the banks failed, the federal government basically bought them out, let them do their thing, but used um, taxpayer money to support those bailouts. Um, and in turn, you know, it was their own fault that the banks failed and like the banks were the ones responsible for the failure. Um, but they were actually getting support from the federal government, even though they were the ones that were responsible for this like large scale financial crisis. Um, and so the big situation here is Joe Biden saying, yep, we did bail these banks out. Um, but I promise you that we're not using taxpayer money to cover the bank's collapses. Um, instead of using taxpayer money, they're using um, fees paid into the FDIC, so basically like bank insurance, um, again, rather than having taxpayers bear that burden. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not like 100% sure, but I think that was like a, a regulation that was made um, due to 2008, um, so that there was kind of like a pool of money with which to support the banks um, if they did collapse without letting taxpayers be the ones, be the ones to really like shoulder that cost and shoulder that burden. Um, so that's kind of a very interesting difference. And that's something that Janet Yellen, who is the Secretary of the Treasury, and Joe Biden have been really, really trying to say is everything's okay. Couple bank failures. You're not paying a dollar of it. If you have less than $250,000 in your account, like it's insured, you're going to be fine. Um, and you know, this is different. This is not 2008. We promise, we promise, we promise this is not 2008. Um, so that's just a very interesting and very, like, unique dynamic there. Um, so the other kind of big conversation that's going on um, kind of throughout is the conversation about the Fed's interest rates. So they have been, um, they were planning on increasing the interest rate half a point. Um, before the collapses and then over the past couple days have been talking about like actually how to adjust the interest rate given the fact that the really high increase of the interest rates has been pointed to as one of the reasons why the banks collapsed the way they did with kind of the, the speed and, and, and aggression that they did. Um, so again, there, and then there's also just in general, a lot of scrutiny of the Fed and how the banks were able to get to this point. Because in hindsight, when you kind of look at the banks, you look at the way that they were structured, um, a lot of the vulnerabilities should have been pretty obvious to regulators, but they weren't caught until it was too late. Um, so again, as I said, 
most deposits or like a big share of deposits were over that $250,000 insurance limit, which made depositors a lot more likely to pull their money out at the kind of the first sign of any kind of issue. Um, the banks had grown really fast um, and were and the depositors were concentrated in a volatile market. So they were getting a lot of money from a f market that was not secure by any means. Um, and then, in, again, in, I, I mentioned this before, but interest rates had increased, but the bank didn't do anything to adjust um, to increase the cost of borrowing for their long-term bonds. So all of these things were happening over the past couple of years, but the Fed didn't really catch it. Or if they did catch it, then they didn't um, think that they had to do anything about it. And then, of course, two you know, significantly sized banks uh, ended up collapsing. So... The Fed did announce that they are going to be doing a review of the bank collapse that will be complete by May 1st. Um, they also just announced that instead of increasing the interest rate by half a point as they were planning to, they only increased it a quarter point. Um, so right now they're kind of working with these like dual concerns of still battling inflation while simultaneously addressing the failure of these banks and trying to make sure that other banks don't fail in the next like couple of weeks um and again there's going to be like a lot of scrutiny for kind of within the fed um within congress the fdic like there's just going to be a lot of conversations and hearings that are happening around this um so this is you know certainly not the last we're going to hear of these situations and jerome powell who is the chair of the fed um is going to be under a pretty significant amount of scrutiny for kind of how they allowed to get the banks, allowed the banks to get to this point. Um, and other small and mid-sized banks um, are still vulnerable. So, you know, the, the banks that are catering to smaller startup businesses um, are more vulnerable in general. And, you know, the smaller banks are more vulnerable than their larger peers in general as well. As we know, the big banks are too big to fail. Ha, 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 ha. Um... But, and again, like these smaller banks are, are rushing to reassure customers that they're fine. Don't pull your money out. Like you're all protected. It's going to be okay. Um, but shares of U.S. regional banks have been kind of plummeting uh, throughout the week. So First Republic Bank, Western Alliance in Arizona, Keycor in Comerica, uh, Zion's Bancor in Utah, um, all had some like pretty significant drops in their shares. Um, that I... Again, like I'm not an economist. I make the joke, but I'm really not an economist. Um, but it seems to me like this is just like a natural reaction to these banks failing and things are going to kind of even back out in a little bit. Um, but what do I really know? Um, but anyway, I just think so that's like an interesting thing. The bigger banks were not affected as much. Some of them dropped a couple points in their shares, um, but nothing to like really write home about. So who are we blaming? Everyone's pointing fingers at everyone. Um, people are blame Republic Democrats, excuse me, are blaming the 2018 regulation rollbacks, and they're also blaming Powell at the Fed. Um, kind of on like a larger level there. Uh, they're saying if these 2018 rollbacks didn't happen in regulations, then everything would be fine and we'd be going about our merry way and all would be well. Who knows? That, that's probably part of it. Who knows, really? I, I, I'm not 
in this situation, I am not capable of pointing fingers, but that seems good to me. Um, but then also the Republicans are blaming specifically the San Francisco Fed and saying, why didn't you catch this specifically? Um, this is a smaller instance of one kind of regional Fed bank not catching the situation. It does not re necessitate more regulation or like longer regulation. Um, this is just a, 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 a moment. This just happened. It's just a moment. It does not require any like larger um, considerations of regulations or anything else. Um, so those are kind of like the two perspectives right now. But of course, everyone's mad at everyone. And this is a very tense situation, obviously. Um, especially considering how volatile the market has been um, since COVID. But one last interesting point to leave you on before I, I move on to my last story of the day um, is that in my view, and most people's view, I believe, both these bank crashes and train derailment, the train derailment in Ohio, had to do with regulations that once, exist, once existed but then were repealed or rolled back. Just just something to consider that maybe regulation is a good thing, that maybe we shouldn't be rolling back regulations that have been once helpful. But, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there, let you think about that, let you chew on that, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So that was our econ lesson for the day. And now we're going to talk about TikTok, our favorite thing in the world that I certainly am not addicted to. I'm not part of the problem, not me. Um... But anyways, one last little shorter story of the day, um, just to kind of wrap up. The federal government is trying to ban TikTok in the U.S. again. Um, you know, this has been something that's been talked about a lot, been spoken about a lot, but a lot of creators on TikTok are now trying, are now seemingly taking this threat a little bit more seriously than ones in the past. Um, they have been talking about what their backup plans are in case TikTok goes away in the U.S. Um, and it's clear that they have been instructed by their managers or by someone um, to address those things um, and basically say, yeah, come find me on Instagram, come find me on YouTube. Like, you know, that, that's kind of what they're doing. Um, and there's, it, se like, it seems more widespread to me than the last time that there was this kind of threat back in 2020. Was I even on TikTok in 2020? No, I definitely was. Look, I got off TikTok during like the first month of COVID and I never left. It's so bad. I really need to delete it. Anyway, so there are a whole slew of reasons why the US may be gearing up to ban TikTok. Um, and again, these conversations have been happening for a long time. The main concern being data privacy. Um, China owns the app. There is a lot of data that is mined through the app of people's interests, um, what they like, what they don't like, where they are regionally, um, you know, what what can engage them. There's just like so much data that is pulled from TikTok um, that is going directly to, you know, the Chinese government, basically. Um, and in 2020, when Donald Trump made that first threat against TikTok, he basically said, he was going to cut TikTok off from all U.S. consumers unless the Chinese owners promised that they would sell U.S. operations over to a U.S.-operated company. And that's a similar argument that's being made today of, why don't you just sell it over to us? We'll buy it. It'll be great. 
Um, will you con- continue to operate, et cetera? We'll, you know, we'll spend so much money on it. Um, but there's no way, in my humble opinion, that this is ever going to happen. Um, there is so much... China is benefiting so much, both information-wise and, like, probably profit-wise, from TikTok. The, I mean, the IP, like, the algorithm itself is such a valuable piece of technology right now that China is never going to willingly sign it away. Um, and again, like, this this data that they're gathering, that, you know, whatever Chinese, organiz- Chinese intelligence offices are, are, are taking, they know that all of that data, if it's sold to the... the operations are sold to the U.S., that all of that data is going to go to the FBI and the NSA. So it's it's going to be a, it's a really significant situation that China's never going to give it up, never going to give it up, um, which kind of gives them the only, gives the U.S. government the only option of, okay, then we have to ban it, um, which is a kind of politically fraught situation. Um, so today, which is Thursday, um, TikTok's CEO um, is going to be testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, and again, this is going to be one of those like kind of big, high-profile hearings where we get a lot of good sound bites, and the, the members really push the witnesses, etc. Um, there are also a lot of TikTokers um, kind of trolling through the House today and the Senate talking with members about TikTok and why it's a good thing and why, you know, how it's beneficial for small businesses and all that. Um, So it's just, it is a very high profile situation. And again, pretty politically fraught. Um, It's a controversial issue. um, And it's pretty interesting, I think, thinking about it in light of the other things going on with the technology industry right now, um, and also kind of with American Chinese relations with the spy balloons and all of that technology um, last month. It, it, it kind of is just like a very politically, uh, diplomatically fraught situation where this is kind of bringing together a lot of the different elements of kind of current events right now, which is very interesting. It's also interesting because it's a uh, somewhat unifying issue across the aisle. Almost all politicians generally agree that it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be giving all of this data to China. And everyone wants to appear strong on China. So that's kind of a a helpful unifying thing for um, both parties that they can kind of have this kind of bipartisan issue. Um, But banning the app is politically complicated um, as the the Commerce Secretary, what's her name? Gina Raimondo? Is that her first name? Anyway, she said, the politician in me thinks that you're going to lose every, literally lose every voter under 35 forever. I don't have that same pessimistic view of the young voter. I don't think that everyone's going to turn into a one issue voter on um, TikTok. But I do think that there there is a case that could be made for the fact that people are going to think that there's going to be some stifling of speech if that is something that the federal government decides to do. Um, but that is kind of an interesting, complicated, and somewhat sticky situation in terms of looking at the like the larger political significance of the issue um, and what that's going to mean electorally down the line. The Democrats have had a lot of luck with Gen Z. Um, I don't think that people are going to become Donald Trump voters if you get rid of TikTok, 
but I also don't think they're going to necessarily support you in the same numbers. Again, like, I just, I, I, I really hesitate to be that, like, reductive about what young people care about and how they vote. Um, but it's not going to be a, like, it's an extraordinarily popular app. Like, it's not just, it, there's, there's going to be some kind of consequence for sure. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some, like, electoral consideration going on there as well. Um, but also, it's not that only one party is going to take the fall. Like, yes, Joe Biden will be the one to sign it into law, but both parties pretty much agree that it's something that needs to go away. So I think that could also kind of complicate the electoral ramifications of the whole situation. Um, but again, overall, the threat against TikTok is kind of theoretical. Um, nobody really knows how this is actually going to go about happening. Um, so, you know, they're having this hearing, but we'll see if there's anything that actually happens long term in response to the hearing. Um, and there are, you know, people have been trying to say to me, I don't necessarily buy it, but they say it. Um, is that there are some, like, benefits of TikTok. So, you know, thinking about the, the book bannings and the, the way that education has been treating, is being treated in a lot of the country. And, like, again, to preface this, like, I'm not sure I agree with the argument. I'm just presenting it. I think it's a, something to think about. I kind of bothers me. Like, I really don't like it, but I'm just going to put it out there. Is that in an age where things are being banned from schools, and people are not maybe learning what they should be learning in order to be like adequate citizens of the world, social media and TikTok have filled a lot of that gap. And it's kind of democratizing education in some way that you can go on there and you can learn about some issue that you might not have access to in schools, which is all well and good. And I generally like that premise, but there's a lot of issues with that. Um, there's no regulation of what's being fed to young people. Um, so sometimes the algorithm is helpful. Sometimes it teaches you good things. Sometimes it's well sourced. But a lot of the time it's, you know, you're being fed radicalizing content rather than the helpful stuff. And you are never sure what's real and what's not real. Um, so that's also complicated is like, how do you, sh how do you prove to the consumer, like how do consumers build enough media literacy to be able to know that what they're being fed is true and like good content, um, especially when, you know, people are not going to be taught media literacy in schools anymore. Um, so I just think it's a like, I, I, I get the argument, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's accurate in practice. Um, but we'll see. We will see. Plus, you ban TikTok, two more are going to rise up to take its place. Vine became Musical.ly, Musical.ly became TikTok, TikTok will become something else. Like, it's, the, the practice itself is not going away anytime soon. So, whew, that's the TikTok rant. Last but not least, we are going to talk about a really delightful story out of my home, my hometown, not my hometown, my home state of uh, beautiful, beautiful New Jersey. Here's the headline. City of Newark falls for sister city scam, quote, whose job was it to do a simple Google search? This story, so the city of Newark was approached by a Hindu nation and said, let's become sister cities. And they said, 
Yeah, let's do it. Love it. Internationalism. Turns out that that nation does not exist. So you guys know, like, the, like, like the um, Nigerian prince scams that were, like, really big, like, 15 years ago that were, like, kind of crazy and now don't really happen that much, as far as I know? Um, it was basically that. They basically got Nigerian princed. Um, and they... Yeah, like, it's really, really embarrassing. So there's, like, the, the country has a website, but no real government. It's, uh, it's, it was created by a scam artist... And nobody Googled it. Nobody Googled, nobody said, hmm, this is interesting. I've never heard of this country before. I guess I should just give it a little Google, see what's going on. They just took everything that was there at complete face value. And then they moved on. They had a whole ceremony. They had the whole thing. It was all actors the whole time. What? 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 I literally read this headline and I was on the floor, quite literally on the floor. Couldn't believe it that... Something like this can actually happen in real life and not on Veep. I'll link to that article. You guys can take a little read through it. Um, but just a truly delightful turn of events for the city of Newark. Sorry for that. A little bit embarrassing. More than a little bit embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Whew. Oh boy. But, um, you know, I've got a couple more minutes. I'll talk about this too. The other fun little thing from the past couple weeks is Ron DeSantis in a speech or in a statement or something, um, basically said that he was, you know, he's, he's born, he was born in Florida, but he's always felt the most kinship to people from like, you know, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Be quiet. Be quiet. He literally said that he's, um, you know, he's culturally Floridian, but he, or he's, you know, biologically Floridian, but culturally from the Rust Belt. He was born you know, he was born as a, um, a person from Florida, but, you know, he realized later in life that he's actually from Ohio. Okay. And no one recognizes the irony there. Okay, whatever. I can't even get into this rant because, like, I'm gonna run out of time. But very, very hilarious thing that he could have said. Um, you know, I realize that I think that I'm culturally or I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally Scottish in the same way that Ron DeSantis is emotionally from the state of Ohio. So I'm happy for him, and I'm happy for him actually coming from a state of delusion more than anything else. Um, so Ron, oh Ron, anyway. <sighs> but with that, that is all I wanted to talk about today. A um, little bit of a, a, a an in-depth one today, but I hope you enjoyed, learned something new. Uh, yeah. I will see you guys next week for some of the same nonsense, but all good things. Uh, have a lovely weekend. Enjoy the cherry blossoms and the lovely spring weather. Uh, and I'll talk to you guys next Thursday.